Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. I'm really excited to be bringing you this episode with Cameron Blanks, Managing Director at Pacific Equity Partners, one of Australia's leading private equity investors. We have a great chat with Cameron about the types of businesses and opportunities they look to invest in and how they've produced such stunning returns over the last 20 years. Please remember that this podcast isn't, nor is it designed to be, advice for any individuals or organisations. We encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to also seek advice prior to considering any investments. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Please keep your feedback coming, particularly about the type of content you'd like to hear on the podcast. Hope you enjoy the episode as much as I did. Enjoy the listen. Cameron Blanks, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you, David. Well, you've got the honour of being the first with our new microphone set up uh, here on Inside the Rope. So uh, I hope you're excited because I certainly am. There's a whole heap of paraphernalia here. I think I know that I'm getting old when I don't know how to set it up and I have to get one of the young guys in the office or one of the team to set it up. Um, so it's exciting. Cameron, can, can I maybe kick away with you perhaps giving our listeners a bit of an introduction to who you are? Uh, thank you very much, David. And uh, uh, so my name is Cameron Blanks. Uh, I've been at uh, Pacific Equity Partners now for 20 years. Um, it's a great firm, uh, but really enjoyed uh you know, building the helping building the business there. We've uh, been going for 24 years so far. So I came in, uh, you know, soon after uh, the fa- the firm was founded. Uh, prior to that, I was at uh, Bain and Company, so a management consultant, uh, which is the origins of uh, PEP. Now, I, I think you've summarized, summarized over that. You know, I want to dig in a little bit of that. And, and I, it was only this morning I was having a coffee with someone in financial markets who was actually representing an international firm similar to yours. And and they mentioned that PEP, Pacific Equity Partners, was probably the premier private equity investor in Australia. And I just want to also talk about your background specifically. And I think if I'm right, if my Facebook or not my Facebook, my LinkedIn stalking this morning says that you went to MIT. I did. And and can you tell us a little bit about that? Because, you know, I, I'm someone who thinks there's some great educational institutions in the world, which are very hard to get into. And some of the people that, that have been produced through some of those organisations is just phenomenal. I'd, I'd be interested in your view or your experience there and what you got out of that. Yeah, look, it was a really interesting time. I was at MIT. It was uh, right in the middle of the dot-com boom. Uh, in the late 90s, um, and uh, MIT is full of uh, really, really smart uh, people, uh, mainly in engineering and, uh, you know, things like uh, robots and all sorts of uh, very interesting type of things. Even the the guy who invented the internet, uh, Tim Berners-Lee, was there. So it was a really interesting time, uh, and I'm actually an engineer by background as well. So, uh, But I did a business degree there, so the business uh, students were all a little bit on the outer because uh, it's really uh, at its core, it's an engineering university, but a, a really fantastic uh, business school that sits um, around that to really, you know, help the uh, technologists and the like to really think about how to commercialise products uh, and uh, services. So, you know, a great place to get educated and make that transition from engineering into into business. 
And tell us a little bit about Pacific Equity Partners or PEP and what it does and what it seeks to do and how, how it does that. Yeah, so I think if you go back to the origins of PEP, we're actually a spin out from Bain & Company, which I'd mentioned earlier, which was uh, also had uh, had spun out a uh, a, a large um, private equity firm based in Boston called Bain Capital. And mm -hmm. so PEP really comes out of that uh, school of thought. And, and the idea is that we're not actually investment bankers. We're about building businesses, uh, you know, with the right strategy and uh, longevity around, uh, you know, what the what the goal of the company is. So really about building better businesses. And that's how we focus on uh, thinking about investing. How do we double the profits of a business? How do we grow them? How do we make sure that there's another leg of growth after our ownership? And that's the focus. It's not about financial engineering. It's about making and transforming better businesses. So how do you typically do that? Well, first off, we've got to look at a lot of businesses and really think through uh, where their um, potential is and how, why are they underperforming? Do they have good market positions and how we do that? So um, that that's the first part of the process. And then we, we're not management. We, uh, you know, we sit on the boards and we're the chairman of the companies and that type of thing, but we're not management. So the next most important thing is uh, choosing the right CEO and CFO combination to take the business forward. So we often do change out management and part of the underperformance that we see in the companies is sometimes these uh, companies have, uh, you know, not the, not the ideal management uh, in, in place. So that's really where we focus on and, and a lot of our deals end up being corporate carve-outs. So these are orphan businesses in, uh, you know, large organisations that aren't getting the right sort of uh, either capital attention or management attention. So if I've got that right, you're essentially a, a group of management consultants by background, business growers, uh, who then focus on opportunities to build and grow businesses with some key expertise in certain areas. I'm interested in what you're saying about identifying the right people. What, what yeah. are some of the things that your experience, you've been at PEP now for 20 years, that you've identified that are almost truisms that, you know, this is a red flag if I see this sort of behaviour yeah. or I know I'm on the right horse here if I see this sort of behaviour. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's about, you see a lot of people and uh, corporate executives, it's about man uh, expectations management. So if they're on a salary and a bonus, uh, the focus tends to be, you know, manage expectations down and, and beat those expectations to get my bonus. We, we don't like that at all. Uh, you know, we much... Uh, we, we really focus on people with high energy uh, who are willing to go after the full potential that sits within that business. And the way that our incentives work is we incentivize our management teams uh, like us, like they, they take a stake in the company as well and uh, the amount of money that they make is uh, tied to the amount of money that we make. So there's a real alignment at the shareholder and management level. Uh, which often in public company environments, you don't see that. Um, you see a lot of expectations management around budget setting and, uh, you know, making sure that you can manage expectations down so you can achieve better than expectations and receive your bonus. It's sort of, it's the, the anti, uh, that approach is uh, the way that we look at things. So do you think there's a problem with public equity markets and investing in companies via public markets due to that mis mismatch that that private private investment gives you an, an advantage yeah well absolutely uh, and I think the evidence is uh, is very clean to see if you look at the data uh, private equities outperformed uh, public equity for the last uh, 
you know, two or three decades and continues to outperform. And it really goes back to this uh, this incentives and uh, alignment of interests that uh, we were talking about. So, you know, if you, if you look at the growth of the private uh, markets over the last 20 years, it's now a $12 trillion asset class. Mm-hmm. Um, it was only $2 trillion, um, you know, a decade or so ago. So it's growing really rapidly and it's because investors have seen that this is actually a better way to govern companies. Now, there's obviously some companies that do lend themselves to to public uh, to public ownership. So you think about the big four banks and, and the like. I don't think they really are. They're probably in the right sort of governance framework. But there's a lot of uh, sort of middle market companies out there in, in Australia and obviously globally that uh, – you know, probably shouldn't be public companies and would be better run uh, in a private environment. I think that's what you're seeing uh, in terms of uh, companies staying private for a lot longer, a lot of uh, public to privates. And, uh, you know, the reality is the number of public companies uh, in the world has actually flattened out and uh, declined considerably over the last couple of decades, while the number of private companies um, is actually increasing at a, at a, at a strong rate. And you mentioned the premium that's been extracted over the last three decades or so. In your mind, roughly, what, what is that premium equivalent to or how much are we talking about here? Are we talking about 1%, 2 3% over a 10-year no, period? No, if you actually look at the data, particularly if you look at the top-tier uh, private equity managers, it's probably more like eight or nine uh, hundred basis points above uh, market. It's considerable and it's sustainable. Uh, and this is really why you're seeing uh, you know a lot of the big institutional and endowment funds are uh, putting more and more money into the private markets because it's just got a superior uh, performance um, around it. Now, obviously, it doesn't have daily pricing, mm-hmm. um, so it uh, you know takes some people out of the market, but or that's really the opportunity of daily liquidity. So there's obviously a premium that comes with that, but uh, you know in terms of raw performance, um, you know it's it's significantly outperforming the public markets, and I think ultimately it comes down to this behavioural. Uh, difference that we were talking about around uh, expectations management, around budgets and bonuses. Sure, and and the incentives being quarter to quarter or week to week uh, rather than long-term, get everything right. We see it in politics and people talk about, you know, the election cycle is really too early for governments to really get in and make long-term changes where we see, you know, governments in Japan thinking about social infrastructure and bullet trains 15, 20, 30 years out um, you know, most Western countries like Australia are thinking two or three years out at best because they've got to get re-elected. You're seeing similar things with companies and the, 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 the allocation of capital within those companies is driven by incentives that don't really align to the long-term objectives of shareholders. Exactly. And look, we can give a few examples that might be helpful Please around do. that. So uh, one that comes to mind is uh, Griffin's Biscuits over in New Zealand. Now, if, if, yeah, uh, you're a New Zealander. Griffin's Biscuits is like Arnott's uh, here in 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 Australia. Um, great great business. It was owned by Group Danone, you know, massive uh, French multinational uh, that uh, had owned that business for quite some time, uh, but uh, you know had uh, had some opportunity. It had about 70 percent market share. Uh, had some opportunities to consolidate uh, factories. Um, to make the business more efficient and, uh, you know, be able to deliver a better product to its customers. Um, but it was such a small part of Group Danone, they could never, uh, you know, get their head around actually going through the process of shutting down and consolidating factories. You know, there's obviously, you know, some people issues around those types of things. So, you know, we were very fortunate to, to buy a business that had had fairly flat earnings 
you know, consolidate factories, um, you know, really re-engineer the business, increase the product line, um, and then, uh, you know, bring the business back to market. We end up selling that to, you know, a large um, Asian uh, foods group. But that's a, a classic example of the type of, um, you know, incentives and, and different things from large corporate to, to smaller, uh, you know, private ownership. And, and what time frame was involved in, in that process? Yeah, that was about a four-year journey. And again, you know, if you were uh, sitting up in the uh, headquarters in France uh, doing your uh, quarterly reporting, you would have actually gone pretty negative cash flow and negative profits while you were going through that rebuilding of the, um, you know, of the factories. And, and that's something that private equity can do. We can take a, a view that, yes, we're going to invest for the next two or three years we're going to really grow through through the the back half of our investment uh, horizon. There'll be another uh, leg of growth to go that we'll get paid for by the next owner of the business. So, you know, that was a four year journey, and it's a journey that um, Group Denome wasn't uh, willing to go uh, through. Which is it's just one example. We've got many of those same type of examples that we could go through. And what type of rate of return would have you experienced for your investors? Yeah, I mean, generally over the last uh, 20 years, uh, on a gross basis, we're in about uh, 43% uh, gross IRR. Now, obviously, we do charge fees and, and performance fees. So on a net basis, you know, since inception, we've delivered an average net IRR of about 24%. Um, but in the last 10 years, we've actually done better than that. We're up at... Uh, yeah, about 56% gross IRR over the last 10 years and about 40% net uh, IRR in that period of time. So, so you mean you can produce those type of returns without being invested in a SaaS technology startup, something yeah. as basic as re-engineering a business uh, yeah. focused on biscuits, uh, produces great returns and probably with a lot less risk. Uh, well, we think so too. I mean, you know, there's many uh, quite iconic brands that we've owned over the years. So Peter's Ice Cream is another example uh, Hoyt Cinemas, um, the list will go on and on um, that, you, that you'd be familiar with. And these are not, um, uh, you know, startup businesses or, uh, you know, growth equity. This is late stage private equity buyout where we're taking good businesses with good market positions but have sort of lost their way and uh, re-engineering them and with a real focus of, uh, you know, doubling the profits of the business and making sure that that's a sustainable growth trajectory. That is in. So when we go to uh, to monetize our investment and sell the investment, uh, the next owner can see the next leg of growth for them and is willing to pay you know a higher multiple than we went on in uh, to to deliver that return to our investors. So you're typically relying on multiple expansion or earnings growth. To, to drive your value creation. Yeah. I mean, look, the majority of our returns have been through earnings growth. Um, the funny thing about it is if you're showing good earnings growth, typically you get a higher multiple on exit. So there is definitely, uh, you know, that uh, that element of it. But really it's driven by that the growth that's uh, delivering the higher multiple. Um, so that's, you know, of most of our business, we're, we're really investing heavily in, um, you know, uh, if we take some examples. So... Vita, which is a big uh, credit bureau business, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was uh, a public company. The board were sort of not investing in the business and there was some dissent uh, within the board. We took that private. Uh, comprehensive reporting was coming through um, and we invested over $100 million in IT technology to improve the bureau um, and expand it out into more of a, a, um, a data intelligence uh, business and uh, and then refloated that business before Equifax came and bought it. So there's another example of the type of 
uh, things we're doing. So, yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about PEP and, and firstly talk a little bit about uh, who your investors typically are and then maybe about the type of funds that you offer and how it fits together? Yeah, so um, we, we, when we started in 1998, uh, we uh, really started as a um, division of Bain Capital. So our original investors were all the endowment funds in the US and US investors. Uh, you know, over the 20, almost 25 years that we've been in business, probably 90 to 95% of our money has been outside of Australia. Uh, we have expanded out of the US into EMEA or Europe and uh the Middle East and into Asia. Uh, so, you know, some really big sovereign wealth funds uh, are our investors. I won't name them, but, you know, from, uh, you know, from, from the Middle East and, and from, uh, you know, places like Singapore and the like, uh, and then uh, big pension funds. We've got a reasonable amount of European big family offices. Um, and, uh, you know, more recently, we're seeing more and more Australian family offices come into our funds, but still, we're predominantly institutionally offshore funded. And what sort of challenges or advantages does that create? Well, I think, uh, you know, certainly um, having a diverse set of investors is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've set our business up in a way that, uh, you know, we can service very large institutional investors all over the world. I think what we're really spending a lot of time now in is understanding how to serve Australian individual investors. And that's a bit of a learning journey for us. Uh, you know, you've obviously got a lot of fund managers, uh, you know, particularly on the public equity side that are very attuned to what they need to do to raise money in the Australian market. But, uh, you know, it's all a bit new for us, um, even though the, we're 25 years old and we, we know what we're doing. Uh, but the way that our funds are structured, um, you know, needs some work to really uh, address some of the issues for individual investors. Um we, we use a call structure. So mm-hmm. when, uh, uh, you know, when we when we need money, the money is not, so let's say we have a $2.5 billion fund, which we, we'd have a $2.5 billion buyout fund. Um, that money is not sitting in our account. It's sitting in our investor's account. And when we need it, uh, we call it from them. It's a, called an irrevocable uh, call notice um, or an irrevocable commitment. So, um, you know, we're, we're applying a call to that um, and the money comes in and that comes in within 10 days. That's a really, really unattractive uh, proposition for an individual investor who, you know, might be on holidays, uh, wants doesn't want to reserve cash for when these calls come at sort of any time. I can um, tell you're trying to manage it for uh, a bunch of clients. It, it, it's not easy. It's not easy. And particularly if you're, you know, you should actually have a diversified portfolio of these <laughs> things. So you end up with a lot of calls. So, um, you know, that's that's really what we're starting to think about uh, at PEP. And, uh, you know, we've uh, launched a product last year called PEP Gateway um, that is uh, designed to address some of those issues. Uh, you know, we're continuing to innovate across our different um, uh, funds to, you know, able, be able to accommodate uh, individual investors. So we have another another uh, product called Capital Solutions, uh, which is a credit product. Uh, it really, uh, you know, provides um, growth capital actually to first-time lenders, so people who don't really want to go get bank debt or, mm-hmm. you know, big uh, companies, decent-sized companies that don't want to go get bank debt but do want a hand in, uh, in in growing their companies to the next level. So it's something we go into with a senior secured position with a 6 to 8% cash yield and uh, then we look to 
uh, partner with the companies to grow them. And so we take some equity warrants um, along that. So participation in the upside as a way to deliver it to our investors, you know, a sort of a 10 to 12, 14% return of a credit product. So, you know, that's something that we think is very well suited to uh, individual investors here in Australia. So, you know, that's something that does have uh, more liquidity than some of our other funds. So we're certainly, um, you know, working on making our funds more accessible to uh, individual investors. And I think you've got a couple of other structures as well. Yeah, we do. We have another one called the Secure Assets Fund, which is mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure-like uh, like product. Um, so it's basically taking a private equity approach to uh, infrastructure-like assets, so things that may not be seen as core infrastructure, uh, but things that we can invest behind, grow, develop, and then uh, then sell on to core infrastructure investors as as core infrastructure. So that's another strategy. And then... So what sort of, sorry, before we get to the next one, what would be some examples of the underlying assets that I think when people think of infrastructure, they think of roads and airports and railways. I think you might be talking about some peripheral type things that have, you know, car parks or things where they have underlying demand that's quite inelastic. Yeah, what are the that's exactly right. So look, the, the very first uh, investment we made in uh, our first secure assets fund uh, was a business called IntelliHub. Um, it's a smart metering uh, business. So in Australia, um, we're quite well behind the curve in terms of moving from uh, from dumb meters where meter readers need to walk the streets and, and uh, take a meter reading uh, to having communicating meters. So that legislation got passed in 2017. Uh, we'd been uh, looking and talking to Origin Energy about their smart metering division. We carved that out in 2018, and that was really the seed asset that we. So this was a division of, of of theirs. Of theirs, and yeah, this is this is like a lot of our deals are sourced as uh, you know divisions of larger companies, and it's not like the larger companies are you know, not, not smart people, full of smart people and that type of thing. It comes down to one of focus and getting the right people and capital attention. So this is a classic example of a corporate carve out, you know, that we were able to invest uh, behind um, that Origin, you know, wasn't uh, well placed to do. Um, you know, with a, when, you, you, when you're thinking about smart metering, um, you put a meter on the wall, um, it sits on that wall for 20 years uh, the reality is, is a householder may actually churn from origin to AGL, or you know, from AGL back to origin, or or, or whatever happens. Um, and that smart meter, the services of those have to still be provided. So it makes a lot more sense for that to be an independent company that's independent from the energy retailers. Um, and that was really the insight that uh, drove us towards uh, buying that business and really, really growing it wasn't seen as core infrastructure at the time. It was a relatively small small business. Uh, you know, we uh, we paid um, about $300 million for it. We uh, bolted a few other things on. We, we invested heavily in technology. And uh, late last year, we um, signed a deal with Brookfield to sell half of it to them at a, at a capitalised value of $3.3 billion. Um, and that's, that's a great example of the type of things that we're doing in the Secure Assets Fund of taking things that aren't really seen as infrastructure and really turning them into, you know, significant businesses that are seen as infrastructure. So that's a, a very good example. We've got a number of others that are in that uh, fund, including, you know, one in the uh, remote area power business that, uh, you know, is, is providing uh, power to, you know, large mine sites that are off grid. 
Um, and you know the big the big play there is uh, moving them from gas and diesel into uh, solar and wind uh, provision uh, in remote areas. So there's things like that that aren't uh, you know the the main uh, ports and um, roads type things you think about when you think about infrastructure. Yep, and I think I cut you off there just before you're about to talk about another fund that you had yeah I think the uh, well the last of um, uh, last of the five strategies that we have is uh, continuation funds and this is um, something that uh, you know we've started to see the trend pretty heavily in the US and Europe um, but we've just done the first one of these again it was actually over the same asset uh, the uh, smart metering uh, business the IntelliHub business uh, we've put into a continuation fund and what that means is it gives the uh, investors uh, in the secure assets fund the option to uh, to sell or to roll into the new the new dedicated fund. Um, so we brought some new investors into that fund, um, and uh, and and some old investors rolled into that. And now that's a dedicated one point five billion dollar fund of its of its own, and it will go on and do more and more investments. It means that we can hold the asset and continue to grow it. Uh, you know, f call it for the next five years. And so that is a step and repeat type uh, strategy. So we've got another continuation fund over another one of our best assets uh, coming to market over the next few months. Um, so, um, you know, we, we see continuation funds as, you know, absolutely a core part of our ongoing strategy and gives an opportunity for people to come in, diligence a single asset and invest behind those. And does that create any conflict buying an asset off yourself and how do you deal with things in that area? Yeah, look, it's a great question and uh, certainly something that uh, sort of took a while to develop and for people to get comfortable around. Uh, there's always a lead investor uh, that comes into these continuation funds and sets the price. Uh, so in, this, in the uh, IntelliHub example, it was Brookfield. Uh, we had ran a full process. We had... Uh, you know, six binding bids, it was, you know, a properly priced um, asset. And it was at that price that, uh, you know, the secure assets fund sold to the smart metering fund. So, you know, as long as you've got third party uh, validation of that price, and that's certainly how all the continuation funds are done. Sometimes it's just a single investor that comes in and prices the deal. Sometimes it's another um, private equity or private markets manager that sets the the price, but um, there's always a third party setting the price, and then the investors have the option to hold or roll. So if they think that it's too low a price, then they should roll. So I think the incentives are pretty aligned. We we obviously take a lot of our economics and we roll them into the new continuation vehicle, so that they, while they sound a bit strange, you know, when you first describe them, they're actually a, a really a win-win for all parties involved. So you know, we expect that to be a growing part of our. Um, you know, our fund structures going forward. You've done an excellent job of telling us where private equity investment works and some of the great stories you've had. Uh, they always say you learn more from your losses. Tell us where the process has come unstuck or hasn't worked as well as you'd like it to. Yeah, probably the one that I'd highlight, and I was uh, heavily involved in, in this one, so um, happy to talk about it. Character building. Um, yes, it was. It was uh, called American Stock Transfer. Um, you know, PEP is a Australia-New Zealand-focused uh, fund. We had a very successful investment in um, a business called Link Administration Holdings. Obviously, it's 
having some tougher days, uh, you know, more recent. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, it was a business that we owned uh, and it was a corporate carve out from the ASX and perpetually in 2005. So look, we've been gone from Link for, uh, you know, for a long time. So, you know, please don't, uh, don't uh, hold what, what's happened uh, more recently against us. But, um, you know, it was, a, it was a great investment for us in the share registry space, Um and uh, we took it into superannuation administration, very stable business, very predictable. And uh, we went to do a um, sort of basically replicate the same thing uh, in the US um, uh, to build a global competitor to computer share. And uh, we signed a deal in December 2007 to buy uh, American Stock Transfer or AST. And, uh, and then the world um, sort of had a significant uh, bump in the uh, financial crisis. So a big part of AST's earnings was uh, interest income. So when the check's in the mail, uh, we were earning the uh, interest or the float interest as they call it. And uh, overnight rates were 5.25%. And uh, you know, within a year, uh, it went to zero. So we lost over half of our earnings uh, in the business in the US. And it's a long way from Sydney to New York. Um, I took that trip almost a hundred times over the next seven years as uh, we started to restructure and, and and rebuild the management team of that business. So a very, very painful uh, journey. And I think we took two big lessons out of that. Um, one is uncontrollable risk, things that uh, we don't control like interest rates. Um, you know, we really try to mitigate the, you know, or, or invest in things that have big exposures to you know, commodity prices or interest rates, things that we can't control. So really stick to things that you can control. Now, there's not in, in business, there's always uncontrollables, but, you know, really limit the uncontrollables and think about what happens in a, in a sort of a black swan event, if you like. So that was lesson number one. Uh, lesson number two is uh, you need to be close to your management team, like physically close to them. So, you, you know, we a big part of what we do is spending time with our management teams and making sure that we're on the same page for strategy, capital allocation, all that type of thing. And it's just very, very difficult to do that when you're on the other side of the world. So, uh, you know, we do focus just on Australia and New Zealand. We know these markets really well. We can be really close to the management teams. And so that was the second lesson. And when you're talking about these sort of closeness and strategy you set with management teams, is there any particular tools or methodologies that you like to use that you repeat out of your sort of consulting toolbook or DNA? Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, obviously that's, they're all a little bit different um, is the, uh, you know, but it's all about transformation and, you know, finding good businesses in growing markets with good market positions that have lost their way. So that's the, if you start there, that's sort of how we think about it. And then it's, well, some of them uh, cost out. So an example of that is Spotless. They had built up a huge amount of overheads within their structure and ultimately as a cleaning and catering business and the whole idea and value creation in the business is getting the, uh, you know, getting the cleaners and caterers actually on time, on schedule at the venues to, to do what they need to do. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the decision-making in Spotless had been centralised, which, you know, really isn't the right strategy to have for a cleaning catering business. So they'd built up a massive, um, uh, you know, middle management. There were 14-storey building down on St Kilda Road full of people um, that were basically checking each other rather than actually getting 
you know, pies served at the footy and, and things clean. So, you know, that one was a, a very large middle management, uh, you know, um, downsizing. Uh, it wasn't actually about getting the guy at the footy to serve pies faster. It was actually about taking layers of management out and, and making sure decisions were made at the right point. So that's that's one uh, example, which is more cost out. And then you go to, you know, some of the examples that we were talking about before about investing. Um, you know, Link, for example, we spent uh, $350 million on IT during our uh, ownership of the, of the business. And it was really about building state-of-the-art um, systems and processes to automate a lot of functions, you know, in a, in a, in a relatively uh, mundane admin environment. So... Um, I think it's really about thinking about what the thesis is around value creation and profit improvement and then applying the right, uh, you know, management uh, skill sets and the like to to those. And that, they're different in each uh, situation. Now, right at the start of the podcast, Cameron, you talked about the premium in returns that you can get from top private equity managers in the space. Can you talk a little bit about when you look around the world, um, what you see as the traits of a really good private equity manager and maybe talk about the ownership structure of that and how that plays into it. Yeah, look, a great question. And uh, we're, we're really biased towards looking at uh, managers that have been around for a quarter of a century or more. Um, we think we've, we're, we are a much better investor today than we were 25 years ago because we've been through some of those experiences that we were talking about uh, before. So for us, actually, longevity, uh, longevity is really, really important um, because it means that people have got the pro, they've got the scars, they've got they've been through the ups and downs. Uh, and then uh, we think about, is this a growing business? Because at the end of the day, every um, private equity firm is actually a professional services firm. We've got clients, they're called investors. Um, and, you know, we need to look after them. And if you're looking after your clients, they keep coming back. So another good indicator is, is this manager been around for a long time and are they growing their funds under management? Because it's a great signal that they've actually been delivering value to their investors for a long period of time. So... I think, you know, those two are sort of threshold issues for us. And then we start to, you know, look at the uh, stability of the team, how long have people been around, the actual people in the firm, uh, and, uh, you know, how are they incentivized, um, you know, to stick around uh, over time? Because ultimately when you're investing in a private equity fund, it's a 10-year journey. Uh, by the time you're committing the capital, uh, the, the, the managers invest in the capital, running the companies and returning the money, it's about a decade. So you really want to make sure that the people that you're investing behind are there for the long term. So for us, that's that probably the three things, um, you know, that we call out as, in, you know, critically important for, um, you know, picking the best managers. And do you see any advantages, you know, I see many of the large US, particularly private equity managers having undergone IPOs and turned public. Do you see any advantages in that or any major disadvantages? Um, look, I think we uh, we certainly wouldn't uh, say that those uh, firms are not going to be around for a long time. They got, they're, they're very big firms now. So if you think about a Blackstone or a Brookfield, you know, they're almost a trillion dollars of assets under management. They're, they're here forever. You know, they're cornerstone type firms. Um, I think... 
one one of the things the way that we look at them is we think that their their actual head stocks of the publicly listed stocks are actually very good stocks to invest in. Um, you know, they they do have long dated money. So unlike uh, you know some other fund managers where money can be redeemed very quickly, you can't that doesn't happen in the private market. So they do have uh, a lot of longevity in their in their fund structures and and that. So as a company, we really like them as a public company. Uh, we're we're a little bit more careful about investing in their funds uh, because the incentives are a little bit different now. They're sort of more driven by f- growing funds under management than they are by the raw returns on their um, on, on their the funds. Uh, exactly. But although that said, you know they still have to continue to deliver good um, returns. Otherwise, the uh, investors won't come back again. So we we don't see any fundamental issue with uh, you know. Uh, private equity firms being public, but they need to be quite big in scale to do that because as a public company, you need to have, um, you know, predictability in your earnings. And if you've only got, you know, a single fund, there's a lot of discontinuity. So if you look at uh, somebody like Blackstone, they now have 60 different funds or 60 or 70 different funds. So, you know, if one fund, you know, doesn't go, you know, the the um, key principles in it leave or something, it, it doesn't really matter in the scheme of uh, uh, of Blackstone, but if you've got a single a single fund manager uh, and they go public and something happens with the the management team, you know you've got a real problem, and it's, so it's not really well suited to uh, the public market. So I think it's really only the very big players that can exist as a public company. So Cameron, we've talked a lot about the type of companies you like to identify, find, and invest. Are there any segments of the markets or type of companies or assets that you simply won't invest in? Well, it's, it's about mandate. Um, you know, we're a late stage private equity infrastructure um, investor. Obviously, we also have capital solutions and, and gateway as well in our uh, stable. But, you know, we're not a venture capital firm and we're not uh, at this point in time doing growth equity. So, you know, it's all about stable growing companies that we can help grow. So um, then then if you start to think about sectors that we like and we don't like, it comes back to the lessons learned that we were talking about. Things with big uncontrollable risks like, uh, you know, big interest rate swings that can impact uh, profitability or big commodity price swings that can uh, impact uh, profitability or FX or any of those types of things that we can't control. We, we do not uh, invest in those types of businesses because we feel like what we really want to get our returns and what we can control is operational performance improvement. So that really is the lens through which we look at uh, investing. Things where we can uh, we can invest behind the right team and the right capital uh, to grow a better business and make our returns that way rather than trying to pick trends or get lucky on some sort of uh, commodity price or something. It's just That's just not what we do. And how much does the underlying economic conditions or outlook affect your investment decisions? Um, look, I think we, we, we invest obviously all the way through the cycles. Um, it's um, So we're constantly in the market buying and selling. Uh, the, the great thing about private equity is we do get the, uh, have the luxury of choosing when we buy assets and when we sell assets. Um, so, you know, for example, we... Uh, sold seven assets uh, last year. 
you know, we did have a sense that inflation was coming. We didn't know how it was going to play out. We certainly didn't see the Ukraine war happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we had a sense that, you know, we were in the later stage of the uh, of the cycle. So, you know, we went very hard last year and, uh, you know, sold seven of our 12 businesses. Um, that You know, that's put us in a, in a great spot where, you know, we're now uh, looking very, you know, carefully at a lot of different situations uh, to invest in. Obviously, multiples have come down, values have come down. This is now a great time to be investing. So, you know, we are able to, um, you know, think about those market contexts a little bit. But at the same time, we also uh, you know, don't think we can call markets. We don't know when things are going to get better. We don't know things when things are going to go uh, more poorly. So it's more about, um, you know, focusing again on the things that we can control, which is, you know, finding businesses where we can improve their profit. And if you're doing that as you're, if you're, you know, you're regularly doubling the profit of the businesses that you own, you're going to make money uh, regardless of the economic conditions. Cameron, I think that's a fantastic summary and a great place to leave the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us at Inside the Rope. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.